and those promises. But last week, we uh, were coming through the uh, message to the church at Laodicea, um, and we talked about, you know, we went through the salutation of verse 14, the condemnation, verses 15 through 17, and then we got into Christ's counsel uh, here in verse 18. And the counsel is kind of ironic. The tone that Christ takes here is a touch of irony. He doesn't command like He does the other churches. Christ is very blunt with the church at Laodicea. But this is an offering of advice. It's, it's ironic. Here we have this church that claims to be something, but in reality, it's something else. Just like the kingdoms, the great Gentile kingdoms in Daniel, to man's eyes, look like a great statue of gold, silver, bronze, and iron. But in God's eyes, those same kingdoms were hideous beasts that came up out of the sea in Daniel chapter 7. It's the same way the church looks great in the eyes of men, Laodicea, in the eyes of themselves, but in the eyes of Christ, it's something very different. But instead of a strong command, Christ offers advice. And I asked the question last week as we wrapped up, is it possibly because as Christ gives this advice, He doesn't take the church seriously and knows that most won't heed this advice? Is that possibly the tone here? Christ offers a threefold bit of advice here in verse 18. A threefold counsel. He counsels the church, the lukewarm church. And we talked a lot last week about what does it mean, hot, cold, lukewarm. Oftentimes this is interpreted to mean a spiritual state. Some are hot, some are cold, that is dead spiritually, and others ride the fence. There is application there. There is, you are able to cross-reference that idea in the Scriptures. You know, out of spiritual deadness, Christ often brings revival. So in that sense, it would be preferred to be in lukewarm. But I believe the main thrust here of Christ's message is cold, hot, and lukewarm in terms of the usefulness of the church or the testimony of the church. Jesus talked about salt. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savor, it's good for nothing. You know, in terms of usefulness, all that the church would be hot and cold. Hot, an, outward fo- I mean, an inward focus, ministering to its own, edifying the saints, just as hot water uh, soothes an ailing soul. Cold, outwardly focused, just like cold water quenches the thirst of a weary traveler. Cold, ministering to the needs of those without through the preaching of the gospel and the demonstration of, 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 of the truth of that message. But lukewarm is to have resources but to be useless because you sit upon them and heap them upon yourselves. And that's the church of the day. All the resources in the world, but the church sits on them. Lukewarm. Useless. We live in a, commun- in a day and time when the church is so spoiled. Spoiled more than any other church in all of church history. We have technologies at our fingertips. The Scriptures. I can carry the whole entire Bible on my phone with a search feature that requires no effort whatsoever to find a verse. All I have to do is remember a word or two. We have all sorts of Christian music and programs and movies on Netflix. Some of them are even solid. We watched a good one last night about Jose. It was kind of cheesy uh, thematics, but it was good. We have all of these things. We can travel anywhere in the world in 24 hours. All of these resources. But 
we bear the least amount of fruit of any church in all of history. It's a sad uh, paradox. So uselessness, I think, is the, is the um, crux of what Christ is talking about here in terms of lukewarm. And so in view of this lukewarm uselessness, salt that has lost its savor, Christ offers advice here in verse 18. Threefold advice. Christ counsels the church to buy of Him gold. To acquire of Him raiment or clothing, white clothing. And to acquire of Him medicine for the eyes. A cure for spiritual blindness. The church at Laodicea had earthly resources. It was wealthy. It lived in a wealthy city that could attribute its wealth to the three main industries of banking, the manufacture of raiment or clothing, and the manufacture of medicine. These were actual industries in Laodicea whereby the city and undoubtedly the members of this church historically profited by. But they weren't using that profit for God's kingdom. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 55.1. And men, I'm going to be uh, using a lot of Scripture today, so be on your toes. I want you guys to turn and turn quick. I think cross-referencing is so important when we study the Scriptures. We've forgotten how to do it, and we've got guides in our Bibles that tell us how to do it. Isaiah 55.1, listen to this, what God says to Israel, because I think He says the same thing to the church here. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You see, what Christ is calling Israel to do is to come drink, to come buy and eat those things that are of more value. But you, when you come and buy, it's not with money and it's not with price. The things the church needs today, the resources it needs, is not the big huge buildings, not the, 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 not the old folks' homes, not the crusades, not the television channels. What it needs is resources that you can't buy with money. Resources that don't have a price. They're priceless. And so they must be given. They can't be purchased. Keep that in mind. God said that to Israel, but that's what He's saying to the church here. It says here in verse 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. You see, true wealth doesn't come from man-made gold and silver. Jesus said that gold and silver rust and tarnishes. Earthly treasures are corrupted. Don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal. There's no security in that wealth. But true wealth is gold tried by the fire. It's a spiritual gold. Friends, this world is not to be converted by earthly wealth. The church does not grow spiritually by money. The gift of God cannot be purchased with money. Anthony, would you look up James chapter 5, verses 1 through 4? Matthew, look up Matthew 6, 20 through 21. And uh, Ricky, if you'll look up Acts 8, verse 20. Let's see what the Bible has to say when it contrasts earthly wealth with eternal wealth. James 5, 1 through 4. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. 
Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Uh, ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crying. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. James is writing to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. <clears throat> and he says to the rich and the wealthy who supposed to know who are supposed to know God, his brethren, this wealth is cankered. It brings you nothing. Howl and weep. Don't rejoice over your earthly wealth. Weep over it. It's a burden. These megachurches should be weeping over the financial position they're in today because it's not being used to further the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 6, 20 and 21. I think we all know this passage. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's an obvious admonition to the individual follower of Christ. But friends, it's an admonition to the church as a whole. If the individual Christian is not to lay up for himself treasures here on earth, why is the church doing that? Buildings and steeples and programs and, and uh, uh, ministry funds and six-figure salaries for the pastor and, and uh, housing allowances and all this. Why? Those things rust and corrupt. These things can be a blessing from God, but if they're not used for Him and His glory, they're a curse. They're a curse. Acts chapter 8, verse 20. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God can be purchased with money. Anybody know who Peter was talking to there in Acts 8? Was Simon the sorcerer, a man who was converted and saw the apostles laying hands on people, saw the gift of God through healing and the signs and wonders, and he wanted that. And he went to Peter and said, give me this gift, I'll buy it from you. He, he offered to purchase this thing with money because he was wealthy. He, he made his wealth on the backs of others, telling their futures and all that stuff before he came to the Lord. And Peter said, your money perish with you. You think the gift of God can be purchased with money? That's what the church thinks today. As long as we have a big enough offering, a big enough program, a big enough sanctuary, we can bring in the lost, the churches will grow. And we can be effective. But God says your money perish with you. You cannot purchase the blessing of God. You cannot purchase the Spirit of God with money. You can't do it. And the Laodicean church trust in its wealth, just like today. We can't do that. That's not gold that is eternal. It's temporal gold that cankers. What is this gold? That Christ counsels the church to buy. Gold tried in the fire. What is it? Let's look real quick at 1 Peter. Some of this I'll just quickly turn to. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. I'll start with verse 6. Wherein ye, talking to the, the believers, greatly rejoice that know that now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith being more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. 
Peter here is contrasting the trial of your faith with gold that perishes. In other words, the trial of your faith is gold that doesn't perish. What Jesus tells the church to buy is gold that doesn't perish. The trial of your faith. What is at the crooks of every single man or woman of God's trial of faith? Whether it's in the Scriptures... Or today? What is at the crooks? What is God always trying to teach us in the trial of our faith? To trust Him. He's trying to teach us exactly what the prophet declared to Zerubbabel and the remnant that came back from the dispersion to rebuild the temple. Turn to Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. When we think of the trial of our faith, gold that does not perish, it's an attitude. It's a mindset. It's a mindset that often has to come via suffering and trial because we can't learn it ourselves. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. Remember, Zerubbabel led the captives back to the land because of the decree of Cyrus. And they rebuilt the temple. And when that temple was rebuilt, many of the elders wept and mourned because they remembered the greatness of Solomon's temple. And they looked at what had been restored and it was just pale in comparison. And it looked as if this small remnant, the moment they came into the land, they were harassed and troubled and persecuted and tempted. And it looked as if there was no way Israel could be restored. And they were forced to trust the Lord. They couldn't rely on their own wealth and resources. They couldn't rely on their own strength or military might. They were basically helpless. And Cyrus, who had given them the permission to go back, was many, many, many miles away. This is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by My Spirit, saith the Lord. And the context of this is not by might, not by power, but by My Spirit these things will be accomplished. That is gold which doesn't perish. That's the gold we need to purchase of Christ. Not by might, ours. Not by power, ours. Not by wealth, ours. But in these dark days, God will accomplish His purposes by His Spirit. I believe that gold tried in the fire mentioned here is an understanding. It's an understanding. It's a heart attitude. That's what Christ is counseling the church to purchase. And guess what? You can't purchase it with money. You can't purchase it at all. It has to be given to you. The church wants to be used of God. It needs to realize that being used by God is not by might, not by power, but by His Spirit. It's quite simple. It's quite simple. I counsel thee to buy of me gold trod in the fire that thou mayest be rich. Eternally rich. Trusting in God, even in the midst of eternal, I mean, temporal poverty, is eternal riches. What else does He counsel them to buy or to, to acquire? White raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Raiment's kind of one of those fancy words for clothing. I've always liked that word. Paul tells us that we ought to be content with food and raiment. If we've got food and raiment, we ought to be content because God's taking care of us. What more do we need, temporally speaking? Food, clothing, shelter? 
What more do we need? Why are we so malcontent? In Laodicea, they were known for producing wool raiment, typically a wool that was a raven black color. It was expensive. It was considered a dainty. It was considered uh, something to be coveted. Raven black wool. But Christ says to the Laodicean church that they need white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. What was this white raiment that was needed? Revelation chapter 19 identifies it. Chapter 19 verse 8. It's talking about the church, the marriage of the Lamb, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. The white raiment that the church needs is the righteousness of the saints. What's the righteousness of the saints? Is it their own righteousness? No, it's the righteousness of God. Nate, will you look up Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22? The righteousness of the saints is the righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? It's going to be defined here in these verses. That's correct. The righteousness of the saints is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is by faith in Jesus Christ. It's an imputed righteousness based upon what Christ has done. Not our own moralities. Not our own goodness. Not our own works. The church at Laodicea trusted in its own works, just like the church today. We are in the Laodicean church age. But we need white raiment. That is trusting in the righteousness of Christ. To be useful. Again, we have an attitude, a mindset that Christ is exhorting us to. An understanding that righteousness comes not from us. It comes not from the organization of the church. It comes from the head of the organism, which is Christ Himself. Trust in righteous, the righteousness of Christ versus self-righteousness. Trust in the sufficiency of Christ versus self-sufficiency. That is the contrast being drawn here. If you want to sum it up, what the church needs is a good old dose of John the Baptist and his attitude. What did John the Baptist say in chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, verse 30? He must increase, but I must decrease. Look at the church today. How many countless ministries out there are named after a man? Someone that founded the ministry. How many, in how many churches around this country is the pastor seen in the light as we should see Christ? In how many places are there in this country where people who call themselves Christians say, look at me, look what I have done. I marvel on these campuses when so-called Christians, sometimes the leaders of campus Christian organizations, come against the preaching of the Gospel. And when they do so and try to make their point, I marvel how many times I hear the first person pronoun. I, 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 me. And very few times Christ or Jesus. Sometimes not at all. The righteousness of Christ leaves no place for self-righteousness. 
We need the attitude of John the Baptist in the church. The lukewarm church needs to realize as he did. He must increase. I must decrease. Are you content in your walk with Christ? Are we content in our existence as this church to be a nobody in the eyes of the world? Are we content with that? Are we content to not be famous, to not have a name as Paul? Paul saw himself as the off-scouring of all flesh. Paul walked away from a position of great prestige and power in the Sanhedrin. And he was content to be a nobody. Is the church today content to be a nobody? Or does it have to grow and be well-known and famous? Getting along with the world, walking hand in hand, ushering in Antichrist. We need that white raiment. Why? That the shame of our nakedness do not appear. The shame of our nakedness. You know, <laughs> I found an interesting joke to play on someone. I've done it a couple times before. And it's kind of a way to prove whether or not when you give someone a card, whether it's for a birthday or an anniversary, you know how we like to write something in the card and we'll put a little Scripture reference. Well, I'm often curious to know who actually looks these Scripture references up. And so I've played a joke on somebody before. Well, I'll write you know, a little something nice in a friend's card and then I'll put a Scripture reference, Nahum chapter 3, verse 5. And I never hear them say anything about it. And it proves to me that they aren't looking it up. But let's look it up because it's kind of relevant. This is a great reference to put in someone's card if you want to play a joke on them and test whether or not they are looking up these Scripture references you write in a greeting card. Nahum chapter 3, verse 5. Listen to this, what God says to Nineveh. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will discover thy skirts upon thy face. And I will show the nations thy nakedness and the kingdoms thy shame. In other words, God tells wicked Nineveh, I'm going to jerk your skirt up over your face and I'm going to show everything, everyone that rancidness that lies beneath. The rancidness of a prostitute. Now, if your friend never says anything to you, they never looked it up. If they do, you'll get a phone call. But anyway, look at how God speaks of the shame of Nineveh's nakedness. Jerking that skirt up over their face and doing what? Exposing it. Christ is warning the church that unless they acquire of Him white raiment, their nakedness will appear. In other words, it will be exposed. When Christ exposes, that's a scary thought. We can escape that exposure by falling upon Christ but what of, the, what of those who don't know Christ and yet claim to? What about in that day when God exposes everything, the secrets of their hearts? What an embarrassing day. The secrets of the nations. The nakedness of the church. Christ's minister, ministry as a judge is to expose. It's to expose. Um, I'm trying to... Get, yeah, Matthew, I'll go back to you. Look up uh, Luke chapter 12, 1-3. through 3. The ministry of exposure. Luke 12, 1 through 3. In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people. Wait a minute, that's not correct. Okay, yeah, yeah, read that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Insomuch that they trod upon one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees and the hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. 
Therefore, whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which ye have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the house Be on your guard, religious hypocrites. There's nothing that won't be exposed. There's nothing hidden that won't be revealed. If the church wants to reveal being exposed, I mean, if it wants to avoid being exposed, it needs to acquire of Christ white raiment. To quit trusting in its own righteousness because those righteousnesses are going to be exposed as filthy menstrual cloths. But the righteousness of Christ reveals. It covers sin. Oh, that the church would throw its trust on the righteousness of Christ to avoid having the shame of its nakedness revealed. You know, the Bible talks about the saints in heaven, the church, having white raiment, the righteousness of Christ. A reward, white raiment, to everyone that is born again, every true member of the church. But do you know, I believe that in eternity, in the millennial kingdom, those white, that white raiment will have different levels of brightness or the glow of the raiment. I believe that the glow of white raiment in heaven is in direct proportion to a believer's ministry or faithfulness in carrying out the Great Commission. Preaching the Gospel. There's an interesting statement in Daniel chapter 12 talking about Messiah's kingdom in the end of days. Daniel chapter 12 verse 3 talks about the resurrection The resurrection in verse 2 to everlasting life and the resurrection to everlasting damnation. Everyone will be raised. Some to everlasting life, some to everlasting, not temporal, not annihilation. Everlasting damnation. Look at verse 3. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever. It's those that point others to righteousness that will shine and shine brightly. I believe that's a subtle way of saying that the glow of the raiment of those saints in heaven will be in direct proportion to their care, love, and labor for the preaching of the Gospel. And friends, the church today has gotten away from that. I don't want to stand in heaven with a dull white. I want a bright white. Now, I wouldn't die on the hill of that interpretation, but I think it's interesting how Daniel talks about the glow being proportional to turning many to righteousness. And here Christ is talking about white raiment. It's an interesting thing to think about. When you think about whether or not you should share the Gospel, think about the brightness of your white vesture in heaven. And may that compel you to share your faith, whether it be here or abroad. Jesus has addressed or offered advice concerning the Poverty of the church, the spiritual poverty, the spiritual nakedness. Lastly, He addresses their spiritual blindness with a sobering word of advice. And anoint thine eyes with salve that thou mayest see. salve is a medication that we rub on the eyes. It used, they used to have it more in a cream form and now we have droplets. I always have to have a little bottle of, uh, of uh, what do they call it stuff... Uh, Clear eyes are visiting with me all the time. Ever since I rode a bicycle across America a couple of times and wouldn't wear glasses, it just brought all kinds of junk in my eyes and they're bloodshot 100% of the time now. But I need that for relief. 
This, that's the kind of thing Jesus is talking about here. He's addressing a church that is spiritually blind. He says, you need eyesight that you may see. It was, it's interesting because historically, Laodicea, the city, was famous for its production of a certain type of eye medicine. They called it the tephrophragia. It was a remedy that came in tablet form. And what you had to do is you had to take a mortar and a pestle and you had to grind it up into a powder. And then you would mix it and make a paste or a liquid out of it and put it in the eyes. And it was used kind of as an overall treatment or a general sovereign treatment for weak and ailing eyes. You know, I can't help but think that maybe that's something Paul would have used. He had trouble with his eyes in his last days. In fact, when he wrote the epistle to the church at Galatia, he wanted to make sure they understood that it was him writing and not someone else. And so he wrote it with his own hand. And then he said, you know, you see the large letters I have used. That's proof that I'm writing with my own hand. He had to write really large because his eyes were bothering. That could have been the thorn in the flesh. So I can't help but think Paul knew what this medicine was. Probably used it. It was a world-famous remedy. But Jesus isn't talking about the tephrophriga here. He's talking about spiritual eyesight that the church needed. What is the tephrophriga for spiritual eyes? It's the Word of God. What's the mortar and pestle that's needed to grind up that tablet to prepare it to be applied? It's the Holy Spirit who illuminates the Word. The Laodicean lukewarm church needs the Word of God. It needs the Holy Spirit to illuminate the Word of God. And yet we live in a day and time when the ignorance of the Scriptures is so prevalent in the church, more so than any other time in history, and yet we have the Bible at our fingertips everywhere we turn. The Bible translated into umpteen number of languages, umpteen number of times in English, even to make the stupidest of men be able to understood. It's on iPhones. It's, it's, it's audio. We can listen to it on an iPod about the size of a half dollar. And yet there's an ignorance of the Scriptures that's just astounding. Books, books, books. So many books, so many books. But much, much learning is a weariness of the flesh and no one cares. We need the Word of God. And we need the Holy Spirit to grind it up and apply it. Jesus said in John 17, 17, as He prayed His great high priestly prayer for the church in His humanity, He prayed to God, Sanctify them, that is the church, that I will build through Thy truth. Thy Word is truth. The Word is the tephrophragia that we need, my friends. And yet we live in a day and time when many Christians will say, the Bible is just written by men. They laugh at me when I tell them that I believe not only the Bible, but I believe the Bible's timeline for the history of the earth. 6,000 6, years. And yet I can list 11 different areas, not 11 specifics, but 11 areas in science of testable, observable evidence. 11 areas that would prove the Bible to be true. And they can't list one. All they know how to say is two words like automatons, fossil record. So ignorant. God's Word is truth. Hebrews 4, we know that great passage, the Word is a double-edged sword able to divide asunder the soul and spirit and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. But we never read verse 13. Verse 13 goes with it, just like verse 17 goes with Romans 1.16. You can't separate it. Verse 13 in Hebrews, Neither is there anything that is not manifest in His sight. The Word is spoken of as a person here. 
For all things are naked and open before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Friends, the Word of God is like a living, breathing person. And it exposes all things. We need it. We need it. But the church, Laodicea, won't hear. They turn from the Word of God, the traditions of men, just like the Pharisees in Jesus Christ's day. And this is a source of great frustration for many of those that seek to be real, that seek to be faithful in these days. It's a source of frustration and depression, discouragement. Every time I look at christiannews.net or the Drudge Report or whatever I look at online, I can't watch it on TV anymore, the news. I'm discouraged, I'm frustrated, I'm angry. But what does Jesus say to the faithful when it comes to unmoved religious hypocrisy? Unmoved religious phonies. He tells His disciples in Matthew 15, verse 14, about the Pharisees, let them alone. Leave them alone. For they are the blind leading the blind. And both will fall into a ditch. Don't let the state of the church today cause you to be ineffective. Don't let it drive you to be discouraged and angry to let your love wax cold. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Instead, let us take the tephrophrygia for the Spirit and apply it to our eyes and live by it, even if it cost us our life. Christ has offered His advice, verse 18. Verse 19. Quick on the heels, Christ gives a chastening. A chastening to the church. As many as I love. This is not to the lost. This isn't to the world. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. This is the Jesus Christ of the Bible. Period. So when they tell you in this day and time to rebuke or to call sin, sin, or to tell someone the truth is not having the love of Christ, then the love of Christ is not in them because the Christ they serve has another name. It's called Beelzebub. It's called Mephistopheles. It's called Satan. Satanas, the adversary. They don't serve Christ. They serve an entity with a mask. The Jesus Christ of the Bible loves His people enough to rebuke and chasten them and call us to repentance. Here I believe that Christ is not addressing the overall church. Because if you go read verse 20, you're going to see Christ is addressing a lukewarm remnant. We're not talking about the apostates here. The apostates are lost. They're false teachers. They're given over to a reprobate mind, many of them in the church. But Christ is addressing the lukewarm remnant who's caught up in this apostasy. Caught up in the tares. There's many that are lukewarm, that are saved. And they're going to be raptured out of this earth. They're going to be ashamed in that day. Not eternal damnation, but shame. I don't want to be ashamed at Christ's coming. It's possible to be ashamed at His coming for the church and not be damned for eternity. Don't take something that's talking about shame and apply it to hellfire when the context doesn't allow it. But Christ is addressing the lukewarm remnant caught up with the apostates, telling them, I love you and because I love you, I rebuke you and chasten you. Be zealous therefore and repent. Um, 
Ricky, we look up 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32. We see this principle communicated to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 32. Is that right? Now it's first, wait a minute. I think it's 1 Corinthians. Talking about the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians. Sorry, guys. Yeah. But when we were but when we were judged, we were chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the Lord. This is written to the church. The church that was involved in sin, making a mockery of the Lord's table at Corinth. Paul even told them that as a result of this mockery, some of them were sick and some of them were dead. That didn't mean damned to hell, because he says here that if we will not judge ourselves, we will be judged, and when we are judged, we are chastened the Lord. Why? That we will not be condemned. So there were dead Christians whose testimony had been so compromised that God killed them so they wouldn't be condemned with the world. So in other words, that doesn't mean hell. That doesn't make any sense. It's this principle that God will chasten believers. And if we won't hear the ultimate chastening is death. The death of this temporal body. That we be not condemned with the world. So that's the principle we need to understand as Christ is saying to the remnant here, the lukewarm remnant, be zealous and repent. Whom I love, I rebuke and chasten. Matthew chapter 13, verses 29 and 30. Jesus says these words, the parable of the wheat and the tares, but He said, Nay! You know, the, the servants of the, of the master, the farmer, saw the, the tare growing among the wheats. Someone, an enemy had sown tares in the field. And they asked the master, Will you have us go and gather up the tares? And the master says in verse 29, No, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. You see, you couldn't even tell the difference between the tares and the wheat. And that's why the master of the parable didn't want his servants going out there trying to root it up because they'd root up the wheat. In the last day's church at Laodicea, the tares and the wheat look like the same. We need to be careful about going through and saying, He's wheat, He's tares. Sometimes we don't know, but God knows. And there's coming a harvest when the wheat will be separated from the tares. That'll happen at the rapture. And many of that, much of that wheat that looks like tares will be ashamed in that day. Eternal life, yes, but dull raiment. Maybe no rewards to lay down at Christ's feet. Let them alone. The harvest is coming. We can't tear up the wheat with the tares. It's that principle. Whom Christ loves, He chastens. And sometimes that chastening is harsh, but it's to preserve them. It's to preserve them. It's very important when we come to Scriptures like this that we are able to cross-reference what is spoken or the principles given in other places in Scripture. We must interpret Scripture with Scripture. And that's what I'm trying to do here. As many as Christ loves. This is not addressing the lost of humanity separated from God who have not even come to Christ. This is addressing those that are His that have fallen into a lukewarm state. Get out of it or I'm going to judge yourself and get out of it, or I'm going to chasten you. If you won't hear, I'm going to kill you. Or to the church as a whole, I'm going to take you out 
and be done with you and I'm going to let Israel complete the job that you started. And that's actually what happens when the church is raptured. We'll get to that later. But we're talking about usefulness here. We're talking about usefulness. Be zealous and repent. If you want to be used by me, be zealous and repent. The proof is in verse 20 that Christ is talking to the remnant. The, the Scriptures tell us that God's chastening is real. It's real and we ought not despise it. We can escape it if we'll judge ourselves. Friends, if we're in sin and we're not living in a way that we should and God brings that to mind, acknowledge it and correct it. That's the way you escape God's chastening instead of making excuses. But when we make excuses, the chastening comes for our benefit. And if we won't listen, then that chastening may be physical death, a sin unto death, to keep us from being condemned spiritually with the world. Alright, I've got a number of scriptures here. Nate, Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. Bob, Psalm 94, 12, and 13. Ronnie, Job 5, 17. Jim, if you'll look up Hebrews 12, 5 through 8. The Bible has a lot to say about God's chastening. And we've all experienced it in some way or another in our lives if we, are, if we belong to Him. If we never have chastening, that's a big problem. We're not His children. We're bastards. That's what the Bible says. Good old King James word. I'm not cursing. I'm using King James terminology. Okay, Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. Listen to these verses. Don't despise God's chastening. He loves whom He corrects. Just like earthly fathers correct their children. They do it for their own profit. God does it for our profit. Psalm 94, 12, and 13. Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law, that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity until, until the pit be digged for the wicked. Blessed is the man whom God chastens. Do we see God's chastening that way? Man, I'm thankful when I look back at some hard times I had and I thought I knew a way and God was doing something else. I'm thankful for chastening that brought relationships into my life that I would have never known. We've got to see things with those spiritual eyes. Job 5.17 Ronnie? Oh, Graham? Alright, good job. Happy is the man whom God corrects. I mean, how many times does Scripture have to say something for it to be authoritative once? But here we have the same thing being said at least three times. And it's not over. Hebrews 12, 5 through 8. Thank you. 
that test, I mean, where all the takers being Amen. Pretty, pretty blunt. Chastening of the Lord. If you want assurance of your salvation, you're not working, walking with the Lord, look for chastening in your life. That can be a source of assurance. Praise God for that. If you're without chastening, then we're not children. We're bastards. Not all men are the children of God. We're all His offspring. But we've been separated from Him because of our sin. And you can only be His child and have that relationship restored by being adopted through Jesus Christ. When we've been adopted, God doesn't deal with us as subjects. He deals with us as sons. And that brings chastening to purge us and to make us pure and to prepare us for an eternity where we live and reign with Him. A glorious thing. But the church today doesn't even teach that. We don't even want to tell people that something's sin because we don't want to offend them. And we don't teach the blessing of God's chastisement on those who aren't walking with Him. Jesus says, Those whom I love, I rebuke and chasten. Chastening. Biblical. biblical. Rebuke is biblical. Man, that runs in the, flies in the face of churchianity today. Oh man, don't rebuke Him. That's not love of Christ. Ricky rebuked someone, rightfully so, on Facebook recently because of something, they, a game they tried to play and oh, they came at Him. You, oh, you can't do that. You need to settle these things in a public, you know, private message, whatever, whatever. Where the church is concerned, Paul said, them that sin rebuke before all that the church might fear. So, brother, I think you were right on target with that. Anyway, um, rebuke is biblically mandated. Not only, not only in the case of just righteous living, but in terms of the church. Proverbs has a lot to say about rebuke. Right within just a few chapters. Daniel, if you look up Proverbs 24, 24 and 25. Um, Eric, do you want to look up one for me? Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Anthony? Proverbs 28, 23. So here we got four, and within four chapters, look what the Bible says about rebuke. So 24, 24, and 40, um, 24, 24, and 25. He that saith unto the wicked, Thou art righteous, him shall the people curse, nations shall abhor him. But to delight that rebuke him, oh, but to them that rebuke him shall be delight, and a good blessing shall come upon them. Those that Flatter to wicked, I mean, the ultimate end of that is they're hated by the nations. We think that's the key to political success today. But those that rebuke the wicked will be loved. How refreshing it would be to see a political leader who would rebuke the wickedness in Washington and not even care about the consequences. I think people would be thankful. They'd rise up and maybe even put someone like that in power. It's a general principle. But everybody, even these Republicans that claim to take a stand, they'll say something and then when the pressure comes, they back off and recant it. I'm sick and tired of politicians and preachers taking a strong stand and saying something and then backing off of it. Backing off of it. Man, that we would heed this principle here. Proverbs 27, 5 through 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. What's that talking about? A friend that loves his friend enough to tell him the truth and rebuke him. But, but flattery is deceitful. Flattery is deceitful. We're so concerned in, with the church today about having friends. Having friends from the world, but we're not concerned with being a friend to the world. 
If we want to be a friend to our lost friends, then we will faithfully wound them with truth. But to flatter them are the kisses of an enemy. Think about that next time you spend a little time with someone that's a dear friend but lost and you're so afraid of offending them. Maybe they need to be wounded with the wound of a friend instead of flattered with the kiss of an enemy. Proverbs 28, 23. He that rebuketh a man afterwards shall find more favor than he that flattereth with the tongue. Rebuke brings more favor ultimately than flattery. A church that's spiritually blind uses flattery. Most of the sermons being preached, well, they'd be over by now because everybody's got to get to the Golden Corral for lunch. So in this time zone, there's not a whole lot of sermons being preached right here in America. But most of the sermons preached today will be flattery. Flattery because the pastor needs to ensure that his flock is happy and their ears tickled so they will continue to put the checks in the offering plate so he can continue to get his six-figure salary or his comfortable salary, continue to get his housing allowance, and continue a job that requires very little manual labor, just sitting behind a desk eight hours a day doing who knows what. Because the type of sermons that are generally preached, I I, I don't know how in the world someone spends 40 hours a week preparing for it. I don't know. But rebuke is better than flattery. Remember that. Not rebuke done in a spirit of anger or hatred or disdain, but rebuke done in a spirit of love. Speak the truth with love. What's love? Love doesn't dissimulate. Romans chapter 12, it doesn't conceal the truth. I'm not talking about a tone of voice. I'm not talking, I mean, I am in a sense. I mean, our tone of voice, our demeanor needs to be one of compassion, but our words need to be that of truth. Them that sin in the church. 1 Timothy was written to show us how matters ought to be conducted when the church gathers for worship. In the church, them that sin openly need to be rebuked before all that others may also fear. These are biblically mandated principles that had been forgotten. The church at Laodicea, they are forgotten today in this Laodicean church age. Let's look at verse 20. We've had the counsel from God in verse 18. His chastening in verse 19, the Jesus of the Bible, a stern, stern words. Now let's look at verse 20. He gives an invitation. We have an invitation. We have invitations in a lot of Baptist churches around the country today. Let's play just as I am enough times where people will feel emotionally need, need it'd be emotionally needful to come down to an altar and pray and then everything's okay. And then Monday comes around and it's all back to where it went before. This is a biblical invitation here. Now, we like to watch sometimes, there's a channel on TV called the Inspiration Channel, and I don't know a whole lot about the ministry that, that has that channel. I don't know any of that. I just know that there's some wholesome shows on there that don't have cursing and have decent themes, and it's nice for the kids to be able to watch something like that instead of the garbage that's on TV. We got rid of cable. I don't know why we picked that up automatically, but we do. But there are, church, there are programs that came out years ago that we look at and we think, oh, these are healthy and wholesome and great. You know, programs like The Little House on the Prairie. Programs like The Waltons. You know, Family Values, whatever. Feature films for families. We love that stuff. But when I watch that stuff sometimes, I'm kind of amazed that the messages being conveyed in these films really aren't good. They really aren't wholesome. They're very deceptive. And it shows me that the problem with the church, Laodicea didn't just begin yesterday. It didn't just begin when Obama was elected in 2008. The seeds of what we have today were sown years ago. 
We were sitting in front of the television the other night as a family, and we watched an episode of The Waltons. Okay, this blew my mind. I haven't watched that too much. But the episode's name was called Baptism. And in the plot of the, of the episode, this revival preacher came to town, and he was preaching a tent revival. And everybody got excited because every year he would come and people would get baptized and all this. And um, anyway, the, the, the mother of the family was real concerned because her husband had never been baptized. And she really wanted him to come to the revival. And he's kind of one of these guys where well, I, I, I find God in my own church, my church in the woods, whatever, whatever. Anyway, that was kind of the crux of the whole thing. And they did these baptisms and this preaching and all of this. The doctrine in this was so bad. It was terrible. It was work salvation. It was the idea that if you come to this revival and get all upset and cry and then walk an aisle and pray and then get dunked in a river, you're a Christian, then you just go about your life. And then at the end, when the husband decided not to do it, the wife acknowledged, well, I guess there are people like Roger Williams who have to leave the church to find God. And she took, they took Roger Williams, the first Baptist pastor in America, who left the dead Puritan churches and founded the first Baptist church that had a zeal for evangelism and tried to make that in, oh, I'm just going to do my own thing. It's horrible. The very first episode of Little House on the Prairie, season one, Go look that up sometime. Listen to the pastor's little sermon in the church. Bad theology. Work salvation. Going to church makes you a Christian. Friends, it started a long time ago. It started a long time ago. We look back with, and I didn't live during these days, but we often look back with nostalgia on the decades of the, you know, if you were around maybe the 30s and 40s or the 50s in 60s before all the hippie movement where America was just wholesome and clean and everybody went to church and we were a Christian nation. No, we weren't. No, we weren't. Come on. People thought going to church made them a Christian. I know people that are 80, 90 years old, some of them in my family, who I don't know if they're right with God or not. They've played a game for a long time and you get to talking to them or you talk to faithful believers that have talked to them and you think, man, are these people trusting their church attendance to get them to heaven? Started a long time ago. I don't know how I got off on that topic. But that astounded me watching that. I mean, it was like, we got to turn this off. I don't want my kids watching this. Garbage. A lot of the feature films for families, that, that company's a Mormon company, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, so, you know, obviously the gospel's not being communicated. But anyway, that's another, another subject. But here we, got a, we have a true invitation. This is the invitation that needs to be given. Not pleading and begging and using emotion, but a st simple statement. A simple invite by the Lord. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come to him and will sup with him and he with me. Now this passage is one of the great evangelistic passages that's quoted for the lost sinner. Commonly referenced as an appeal by our Lord to the lost, to sinners. But no, friends, Christ is not addressing the sinner here. He's addressing the church. Specifically, individual members of a lukewarm church. Not the church as a whole. He's addressing individual members. Just like He does at Thyatira, the church of moral compromise, to the rest that are in Thyatira, to the remnant, this is what I have to say. Just like He did to the church at Sardis, the dead church, to the rest that are at Sardis haven't defiled their garments, I'm talking to you. Christ is talking to the remnant here. The remnant. This is not the door of the sinner's heart. Why is that? 
Because when it comes to the sinner, the heart is not the door. Jesus is the door. John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. If any man enter by me, the sinner, he'll have life. See, when it comes to the sinner, Jesus is the door, not the heart. But when it comes to the believer, the child of God, in terms of fellowship, in terms of usefulness, in terms of obedience, closeness, sanctification, the heart has a door. And it's fastened from the inside. And here, Christ addresses the church. Here, the door of communion, fellowship, and usefulness with a latch on the inside has been closed. And we have a most startling revelation. One of the most startling revelations in all of Scripture. Christ, the head of the body, the head of the church, is on the outside of the church. A most startling revelation in the book of Revelation. It is possible for a church to be growing and outwardly prosperous and yet have no fellowship with Christ. He is outside the church having to knock to gain admittance. I remember one time reading something or listening to Rick Warren, listening to him give an address somewhere. I don't remember the the specifics. But he was talking about those who accused him of false teaching and those that accused him of using worldliness to do ministry. And he says, hey, all I say to those people is look at the proof. Here's the proof that what I'm doing is of God. Look at our churches. They're growing. I took this church, this small group, and we've made it into this. Our churches are growing. They're prospering. God's blessing them. That's the proof that it's of God. No, Mr. Warren. No, no, no. You do err not knowing the Scriptures. Because it's possible for a church like yours to grow from nothing to many thousands. It's possible for your churches to have big buildings and for you to acquire money in ways you didn't think possible. But it's not of Christ. He's on the outside knocking to gain. And the proof is that the way you're conducting ministry does not agree with the Scriptures. That's the proof. Church growth is no proof that Jesus is behind it. God does bless. God does give growth. But when the attitude of the church doesn't reflect Philadelphia and it reflects Laodicea, then don't err believing that God is blessing you. A lot of things we see as blessings are really curses. A most startling revelation. All the excluded Christ. Christ excluded from the church here. He was excluded from His own nation when He came. Emmanuel, they rejected Him. He was excluded from the world He created. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not made anything was made. They crucified Him. His nation rejected Him. His creation crucified Him. And He's excluded from the church He built. I will build My church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He built this church, and now He's excluded, knocking for admittance in these last days of the church age. What a sorrowful thing. I don't know what that's like. I don't even begin to know what that's like, but I've had a taste of it. We started a street preaching club at the seminary in Golden Gate when I lived out in California. And this club we started, me and another brother, the day came when we were excluded from our own club because the people in that didn't want to do street preaching anymore. They wanted to do coffee shop evangelism, have a conversation that might result in the name of Christ being mentioned 
But oh well, if not, we've been nice. Before not long, I was on the outside looking in. A dojo I helped build, build over here in Newton gave a lot of my years of life. I'm on the outside looking in. That's terrible. I know how painful that is to me. I can't imagine what Christ feels in His humanity to be excluded. But all will be made right. How does Christ, who is outside the church, get back inside? How does the Laodicean church become useful in these dark days? The key, verse 20, is a little phrase. If any man. If any man. The key is not in the church as a whole, it's in the individual members. Some of them form independent church bodies. Some of these individual members are stuck in dead churches and mega churches. But the key is the individual member. If any man, the church has lost its savor. Just like salt that's lost its savor. Largely, the church, particularly here in America, has lost its savor. It's useless today. But God is still saving and pruning individuals. And He is using these individuals that may not look prosperous, that may not look effective to the Laodicean church, but He's using them to accomplish His work in this last day. Individual members of the church must open their hearts, latched from the inside. They must answer the invitation for fellowship, guidance, and usefulness. But friends, this invitation has got to be answered immediately. There's no time to screw around. If He's knocking, you better answer it, and you better answer it immediately. I think there's some interesting scriptural imagery of this knocking. The bridegroom knocking and the bride inside. An interest, interesting imagery that highlights the need to answer immediately. There's a book in the Bible that I've never ever in my entire life heard preached from. I'm going to reference it right now. Song of Solomon. There's another book in the Bible, if I finish this message today, never ever preached from, we're going to reference too. But I may have to get to that next week. Song of Solomon. It's right after Ecclesiastes. It probably doesn't have anything underlined or highlighted in your Bible. You may not have ever read it. Song of Solomon 5. Listen to this imagery here. The bridegroom comes knocking while the bride is asleep in the garden house. The bride is speaking, verse 2, I sleep, but my heart wakes. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying... Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, for my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? And then it says, My beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door and my bowels were moved to him. The beloved was knocking. He even put his hand to the door. Her bowels were moved. Verse 5, I rose up to open my beloved and my hands dropped with myrrh and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself. And he was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The beloved, the bridegroom knocked. The bride was moved, but she was slow in response. And when she came to the door, he was gone. Look at the imagery there. Is Christ knocking? Did you desire to open it, but you're taking your dear old time, and when you open it, is He gone? That's a sobering piece of imagery right there. Look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12 in a parable. Same thing, same principle. Luke 12, 
35 and 36. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. That means your testimony going forth. And ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when He shall return from the wedding, that when He cometh and knocketh, they may open unto Him what? Immediately. There's no time to screw around, my friends. There's no time to mess around. We know what we need to do. We need to do it. Corinth knew what it needed to do when it came to supporting Paul and his ministry, but they messed around. God provided it through the poor churches of Achaia and Macedonia. And Corinth was left on the outside, not bountifully reaping because they had sown sparingly. Don't screw around. I remember years ago, me and two brothers, one of them's a missionary in Argentina now, another guy had served the Lord, I've served with him also. We went on an expedition in the wintertime in the Sierra Nevada mountains in California. We wanted to climb this mountain, Mount Ritter. It's a mountain that I had seen from the highway. It's a classic Sierra Peak. It's um, a bit of a challenge. And I'd want, we all wanted to climb it, and we went in the wintertime. And we watched the weather forecast very carefully. And we knew the reality of the situation. We knew that we didn't have time to screw around, and we did. So we went up the peak. We got high up on the peak that morning, and we had to turn around. And I wasn't happy about it. I don't like to try to climb a mountain and fail. But we turned around knowing the storm was beginning to come, and we had a limited amount of time to get out. We weren't very far distance-wise from the road but the trail was being obscured by the snow. Well, we came down to the camp that was in this veil, and we were all kind of tired and thought, well, you know what? We're almost all the way out. We know the seriousness here, but we're tired. We got up early. Let's just take a nap for a little while, and then we'll get out. Even if the snow comes, it won't be a big deal. We got up about an hour and a half, two hours later, and it was dumping. And so we packed everything up and thought, this will be simple. We'll try to get out. Long story short, we spent a night in the wilderness with no food, frozen water, having to put up a tent after dark, completely off the trail because you couldn't see it, and having to spend a night out there in that freezing cold weather. Woke up the next morning in my tent, we were buried. We screwed around. We didn't do immediately what we needed to do. Now, praise God, we got out the next day. We found out the next morning when the light came out, we were about a mile from the road. Didn't even know it. And we were in a very precarious position where we were camping near a cliff, didn't even know it. And when we got to the road, we were seven miles from the town, and they didn't plow that road. So we had to walk seven miles in a snowstorm up a road, one guy breaking trail for ten minutes, and then the next guy would stop. We got out. But it would have been better if we had not taken that nap and just gone. We'd have been out where the road was visible. Spiritually speaking, there's no time to mess around if Christ is knocking on the door of the church. The cure for lukewarmness in the believer's heart is a readmitted Christ. Readmitted for fellowship, readmitted for guidance, readmitted for mastery. The church cannot serve two masters. The Christians should, cannot serve two masters. You can't have a foot in the church and a foot in the world. You can't have a foot with Christ and a foot with Satan and His kingdom. But the church today not only has a foot in the world, it relishes in the world. It soaks in the world like it's a great hot tub, loving every minute. How can we readmit Christ? 
This necessitates something that's very sobering. I believe the key to readmitting Christ in the remnant church today involves declaring independence. Separating ourselves from much that is the structure of the American church. Much that is the structure of American culture. The very structure of these things is a barrier. It is a deadbolt lock on our heart. We've got to separate Himself. Are we willing to walk away from things that are considered normal, successful, and coveted today both in the church and the world? I can think of a lot of things that are at least worth thinking about. Are we willing to separate ourselves from the steeples? Are we willing to separate ourselves from the auditoriums? Are we willing to separate ourselves from the big missions organizations? Are we willing to separate ourselves from health insurance? Are we willing to declare our independence from the public school system? Are we willing to walk away from politics? Are we willing to separate ourselves from these things? You have to listen to the Lord and what He's telling you and you have to act upon that. I'm not making a doctrinal statement here about certain things, but I am saying that if we want Christ to be readmitted in the remnant body, we must be willing to be separate from what is called the church today. We must be willing to be accused of being a cult by them. And that's more than just spiritual on the inside. It requires action. Are we resting in a career, but yet God's calling us to put that aside and go serve Him? Open the door of your heart. Open the door of your heart. Jesus gives a, an invitation. He's not a beggar. He's not pleading with you to hear Him like most of the invitations today were just as I am multiple times. Songs, raise that hand, preach this prayer for me. He's not a beggar. He's a great king. He's a governor. He's a creator. He's not pleading, but he is knocking. He is knocking. Will you listen? Will you open? Verse 21, the last verse, or not the last verse, but close to it. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. And I don't, I'm just going to preach till Matthew gets back. Is that all right? Because we can't eat till he does anyway. So as soon as he walks through the door, I'll wrap it up. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also came and sat down with my Father in His throne. To him that overcomes. This is the promise. Christ has given the invitation, and now the promise is to those who overcome. Are these overcomers a special category of Christians? A special category of super spiritual Christians? No. We've talked about this every time we reach the end of one of these seven letters. Who are the overcomers? What book of the Bible defines the overcomers? I've referenced it many times. Come on. Who is he that overcometh the world? What book of the Bible is that in? No, come on. 1 John chapter 5. Man, we've gone over that many times. 1 John 5. For whosoever is born of God overcomes the world. Verse 4. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. So an overcomer is just a Christian. If you believe Jesus is the Son of God, you've been born again, you are an overcomer. There are no 
Christians and then special Christians who overcome. The overcomers are the remnant. They are the remnant. There is a remnant within Laodicea. That's who Christ is talking to here. There is a remnant that will be raptured out at the end of the church age from Laodicea. Some of those will be happy and glad. Some of those will be ashamed. Some of them will be dressed in bright white. Some will be dressed in white a little less bright. But we're talking about the remnant body here. He that overcomes is the true Christian. To overcome is what? It's to endure. Not to run, but to endure. What amazing condescension we have here from Christ. He shifts His tone. A voluntary descent from His rank as judge. The lukewarm, which in this same letter is in danger of being vomited out of Christ's mouth, is now given a promise that they will share His glory if they'll but divorce their lukewarm state. What an amazing thing. Christ says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. But yet, if you'll just open up, I'll share my glory with you. Wow. Praise God for such condescension toward lowly sinful men by the King of creation. Here, it's very interesting, we have the present position of Christ contrasted with His certain future position. Friends, you can't read this promise and follow the doctrines of post-millennialism or amillennialism. You can't read this passage and think that Christ is reigning on His throne now and we're in the millennial kingdom and the church has replaced Israel. You can't do it. Here Christ contrasts His present position with His certain future position. Now, at this moment, during the church age, my friends, Jesus Christ shares the throne of His Father. He sits down at the right hand of the Father. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, this is future, and am set, present, set down with my Father in His throne. So Christ talks about my throne and His throne. Presently, Christ shares the throne of His Father at His right hand. Stephen saw Him standing on the right hand of God when He was stoned. All the Scriptures in the Old Testament point to Christ at the right hand of God. Think of this. Think of it as a co-regency in a sense. David and Solomon. You see, Solomon was king at the right hand of his father for some time before David died. What about Uzziah and his son Jotham? Co-regents. Nabonidus and Belshazzar in Babylon. You see, Belshazzar the king in, in, in Daniel chapter 5 who saw the writing on the wall was a co-regent. He reigned alongside his father in his father's throne. His father, the general, was out making war and Belshazzar was there ruling over the city. Co-regents. Christ sits on the throne of His Father now. We know this. Mark 16, 19. Hebrews 10, 12-13. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. I could go on and on. There's no argument here. Christ rules and reigns in the hearts of His people now from the throne of His Father. But the day's coming when He will have His throne here on earth. And He will rule and reign as a physical, literal king. Let me just read Hebrews 12 real quick. 
verses 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which thus so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking to who? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, to overcome us to endure, despising the shame, and is set down. That means presently in that tense in the original language, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. But the day comes, friends, when Jesus will possess His own throne here on earth. What throne is that? It's the throne of David. The throne of David where? In Jerusalem. Are they back yet? I guess not. I don't know if he's waiting outside. Let's just keep going for a minute. I know it's a little later. Scriptures real quick. Anthony, Matthew 25, 31. Daniel, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Ricky, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Uh, Daddy, Luke 1, 32 and 33. Jesus is now presently in the, sitting at the throne of God. The right hand of God in heaven. But there's a day coming when He will sit in His throne as an earthly king. Jesus is God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all one God. So the throne of God is the throne of Christ. But we're talking about man's perspective. We're talking about heaven, the heavenly throne, and the earthly throne. Jesus is saying He overcame and has sat down with His Father in His throne. And even as I overcame and sat down in His throne, you that overcome will sit down in My throne. Matthew 25, 31. When Jesus comes, the second coming, with His holy angels, then will He sit in the throne of His glory. That's the millennial throne of Christ. The parable of the sheep and the goats is not talking about the final great white throne judgment. It's a judgment here on earth. A judgment of nations, not individuals, read it. Nations that were friends to Christ's brethren. Who's, who's His brethren? Israel. And those that were her enemies in those days of tribulation. That's the judgment. But Christ in that judgment sits in His own throne. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him. And there was given Him dominion and glory and, and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. This is one of the great messianic passages in all of Daniel. Every Jewish person that knows the Old Testament knows this is referring to Messiah. Why do you think the Pharisees got so angry at Christ? At His trial, Christ didn't answer His accusers. But the high priest says, Tell us whether or not you are the Messiah. And Jesus said, You say it. But I'll tell you this you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And then they picked up stones to stone Him because they knew He was taking the passage of Messiah, given an earthly throne and applying it to Himself. And they said, what further need do we have? This man has spoken blasphemous. He's called Himself God, the Son of God. This is Messiah here. Messiah will be given an earthly kingdom. That kingdom will transcend this present creation and go into the new creation for all of eternity. The new Jerusalem, the city that comes down from heaven will transcend the millennial dispensation and endure into the eternal state. We'll see all of that. We're talking about the throne of Christ that's coming, literal. 
He's not sitting on that throne now. Hebrews says he's sitting there on the throne of God expecting until his enemies be made his footstools. You can't be amillennial and postmillennial and believe the Scriptures in their literal, simple, for the common man, for the plowboy context. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Appropriate Scripture for this time of year. Who's got that one? Was that fulfilled during Christ's first coming? No. Numbers tells us there'd be two comings of Messiah. A star will come out of Jacob. That's what the wise men saw. And a scepter will come out of Israel. The star has come. He paid the price for the sins of the world, but the scepter's coming. And the scepter has his own throne here on earth. Luke 1, 32 and 33. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Who told that? Who spoke those words and who did they tell it to? Come on, guys, it's Christmas time. The angel that came to Mary. Mary. Mary was told that this son in your womb, this son of God, that God the Father would give unto him the throne of his father David. Give to him. This isn't talking about a shared throne here. Give to him. This is the throne Jesus is referencing here in Revelation chapter 3. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, the throne of David. The rule and reign of this earth, not only in the millennial kingdom, but in the new heavens and the new earth for all ages. A kingdom in which Israel is at the center and the nations of the earth come and worship and live in harmony and peace under a righteous king. This is the throne. Right now, Jesus is with His Father in His throne. But there's coming a day when He will judge the world in righteousness and He will sit in His own throne. And just as He shared the throne with His Father now, the day is coming when His saints, the church, the remnant, will share with Him in His own throne. What does that mean? It means that the church will live and reign with Him. The overcomers will live and reign with Him not only in the millennium, but for all eternity. Just like Daniel had a privileged position under the monarchies of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Darius, a very privileged position, that will be the position of the church under the reign of Christ. The Bible says in 2 Timothy that if we suffer for Christ, we will reign with Him. Ruling, authority... Jude 14 and 15, Jude quotes the prophet Enoch, who was a figure of the church, taken out of the world before God's judgment. Noah was a type of Israel preserved in the world through God's judgment. But Enoch said, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His saints to execute judgment. He's coming with His saints, and they with Him will execute judgment and authority. Paul says that the church will even judge angels. In 1 Corinthians 6, 
Why do you people in the church go to the earthly, worldly courts to settle your disputes? Don't you understand that in the kingdom we will rule and judge with Christ and we'll even judge angels? Set up among you the least esteemed of your brethren to judge between these matters. Don't take it to the earthly courts. Do we listen to that anymore? No. Revelation verse 26, and I'm just going until he gets back. I, I, I don't... Blessed is he, blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they, that is the saints, shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. That's the millennial thousand year kingdom. I had somebody who's a little more amillennial in their theology. Good preacher, preaches the gospel powerfully on the streets. Praise God for that. Eschatology, I believe, is wrong. said to me, well, how do you build this doctrine of the millennium off of one verse in the Bible? And he said, Revelation 26 is the only place in the Bible that talks about the thousand-year reign of Christ, and yet you're building the whole doctrine on it. I said, well, friend, how many times does the Bible have to say something so clear for it to be true? And I said, you do err, though. I said, have you read the Old Testament? Have you read the Torah, the Ketubim, and the Nevi'im? Have you read the Old Testament? The millennial reign of Christ is, talking, is spoken about throughout all, whether it's the law, the writings, or the prophets. It's there abundantly. All Revelation 26 does is put a time frame on the earthly stage of it. That's all it does. Go read Isaiah chapter 2. We've got to understand Scripture. Here we have a time frame for the earthly stage of Christ's eternal reign, a thousand years. After a thousand years, Satan will be loosed from the bottomless pit for a time to deceive the nations. Gog and Magog will come again and try to overthrow Christ's reign and there won't even be a battle because fire will rain down from heaven. And that at that time, God will destroy this present generation, this present creation. He'll, read, he'll make a new heavens and a new earth. The new Jerusalem, the church, the saints will transcend into that new eternal state. And the wicked will be judged at the great white throne. You see, hell is like the county jail. You're in hell, you haven't even been judged yet. The great white throne is the penitentiary. And we'll see a lot of that as we go through this book. So really, that brings us to the end of this message to Laodicea. There's one verse left. And we know this verse. We've heard it many times. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. A concluding admonition. We've seen this at the end of every letter, but here it's as fitting an ending for the quote-unquote things which are the letters to the seven churches just as Revelation 22, 18, and 19 is a fitting ending for the whole Bible. At the end of Revelation, it warns those who would add to the words of this prophecy and take away from the words of this prophecy. Speaking of Revelation, but fittingly placed to speak of the entire canon of Scripture. So we have this concluding admonition fittingly placed at the end of the letters to the seven churches, which is the end of the church age. It's fitting. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. We've spent the last weeks talking about specifics. But I don't think we can move on without asking ourselves, what do these seven letters as a whole not specifically, but as a whole, what do they teach us? And we're going to talk about that next week as we transition into chapter 4. So next week we will start chapter 4, but we're going to introduce it by asking a question. What do these seven churches as a whole teach us? Because we've already talked about the specifics. And the last thing Christ says here to the church 
He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, plural. So we have to ask ourselves, what do we learn as a whole through this concluding admonition? I want you to investigate this, that this week, and I want to hear your ideas. What does God tell you this week as you think about these, last, these seven messages as a whole? What is the Lord telling you we need to learn? I have an idea, and we're going to share with that next week as we transition into chapter 4, the things which shall be hereafter, the third division of the book of Revelation. And I'm excited because things will move faster. I promised you that before we're done here, I will cover an entire chapter in a single service. It will happen. Just not now. Alright, let's pray for the food. I wanted to just go till they got back. They just walked in the door. Hope you guys were blessed by that. Sorry for being long-winded. Paul was so long-winded, he preached all night and somebody fell out of the window because they fell asleep. So, I don't get upset if you're falling asleep. Thanks for enduring. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time of teaching. Thank You for our guests that we have here today. I pray they were blessed. Lord, I pray Your Spirit would... Teach us, Lord, what You've said to the churches. May we know not only what You've said to them specifically, but what You say to them as a whole. Give us guidance as we seek Your Word. Lord, help us, if we are lukewarm or fall into lukewarmness, to immediately open the doors of our heart to, to, to restore that fellowship, Lord, through confession and repentance toward You, the only mediator between God and men, and that we might be obedient in these dark days. Help us to find joy in knowing that You still do work through individuals and use individuals even in the darkest of times. Bless this food that's being laid before us. May it give us strength. Thank you for providing the funds for it. Thank you for the fellowship we can enjoy over a meal, just like your early church. Thank you for this body, Lord of believers. We're so, I'm so grateful. In Jesus' name.